Well, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark over the last little while, and we've been watching the exploits and stories and teachings of this man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We've seen him turn the first century world upside down and give this, this revolutionary vision of an eternal kingdom of God, a kingdom that is very much present in the body and in the, the words of Jesus, but is also at the same time tantalizingly out of our grasp in the future. We've seen him proclaim this kingdom. We've seen him perform miracles to point towards this kingdom. And we will soon see just how far he will go in order to get us into this kingdom. But I don't want to ruin the ending for you, so I won't tell you about that. But through this whole journey, through all of these narratives that we've been looking at, we've been looking through the perspective of Jesus. And, and fair enough, it's about him. But today I want to change it up a little bit. I want to give us a different perspective, especially as we look at um, a series of uh, interactions between Jesus and the teachers of the law. I want, to, I want us to look through the perspective of the Pharisees. So today, without ever leaving your seats, I want to take a trip back into history and step into the shoes of a Pharisee in the first century Palestine. Now, as a Pharisee, you are one of the leading players in the religious leadership of the nation. There are four major sects involved in this leadership. You have the Essenes, who are somewhat of a separatist kind of group. You have the revolutionaries, including the Zealots, who uh, favor a militaristic ousting of the Romans. You have the Sadducees, who mingle with the priests and the elite upper class. And then you have you Pharisees, who'd kind of take a more middle-of-the-road, middle-class attitude. And for that, you merit the favor of the people. So, arguably, you are one of the most important parts of the Jewish religion at that time. And you would certainly argue that you were the most important part of the Jewish religion at that time. You also herald a pretty prestigious history. It's not sure exactly when the Pharisee tradition began, but it's likely to have formed around the Hasmonean dynasty in 150 BC. Now, these were some pretty exciting times for the Jews. They had just been ruled by the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was an absolute monster. So the Jews rose up, revolted, and kicked him out of town. Then you set up your own line of Jewish kings. Now, this was really exciting because... For the first time since the Babylonian captivity, like 400 years before then, you are in charge of your own nation. Unfortunately, the kings that they set up back then were not descended from the great King David, so they weren't in line with Scripture. And the priests that they set up were, well, they were useless. <laughs> so as far as spiritual leadership for the nation goes, there wasn't much available. So that's probably why the Pharisees arose during that time, to restore some purity and some righteousness to the nation of Israel, which is why you guys are so obsessed with purity and righteousness and cleansing laws. You guys saw yourselves as the kingdom of priests described in Exodus chapter 19, an extension of the holiness of the temple out into everyday life and to everyday people. You saw yourselves, at least in your own minds, as the guardians of the Torah, or the Word of God, 
you were, it was so important to you that everybody strictly kept to the laws that God gave Moses. In fact, it was so important to you that you had a whole other tradition, a whole other set of laws outside of the Torah just to protect people from breaking those laws. So, for example, the law says that you can only travel half a day's journey on the Sabbath. Well, you would say only travel an hour's journey just to be safe. So the law might say you cannot touch any dead animals. Well, you would say don't even get within three meters of a dead animal, just in case. So you set up this hedge, this fence around the law so that people can't even get close to breaking it. Now, you Pharisees grew in prominence and influence in society to the point that now, in the first century, you guys are regarded by most people as the experts in the law. In fact, you guys held a pretty important part in society. With the Romans around, there's no Jewish king. The priests at this time didn't have much clout in society, and there hadn't been a prophet for over 400 years. So when it came, and this is important, when it came to the authority of God on earth, when it came to spiritual leadership, you were it. You were the ones who knew the law. You were the ones who protected people from breaking that law. You were the ones who understood what God really wanted. At least that's what you thought. So yeah, you held yourself in fairly high esteem. Yeah, you kind of like taking the most important place in the banquets and the festivals and in the marketplace. And yeah, you kind of liked it when people looked up at you with respect and awe. Well, didn't you deserve it? Didn't you go out of your way to show people how to be clean and holy? Didn't you wear long robes with tassels on the end of it to remind people of the law? Didn't you tithe large amounts of money in front of the people so that they, you would be an example to them? And pray long and, and grandiose prayers to show people how intelligent and how obvious good standing you, you were with God? Yeah, you know what? You're the man. You are the authority of God on earth. And everybody seems to be on board with that. Except this one really annoying guy. He's a carpenter of all things. From Nazareth of all places. His name is Jesus, and he is really starting to get on your nerves. You've had a few run-ins with this guy already, and you're somewhat less than impressed. In fact, it started with this other guy, John the Baptist. Now, he claimed to be the prophet of God, paving the way for the Messiah. And then, of course, he says that the Messiah is this guy, Jesus. Cousins, by the way. Hmm, interesting. So then this Jesus goes around proclaiming the kingdom of God, performing miracles, and generally behaving like he is the Messiah. Well, as Pharisees, you know that's just rubbish. I mean, if the Messiah turned up in Israel, you would be the first to know about it. In fact, just between you and me, you think that the, the Messiah is going to be a Pharisee. But at the very least... He is going to be working in conjunction with you guys. So who does this guy think he is? And Jesus, wow, he's made it very clear from the beginning that he's not working in conjunction with you guys. I don't know what your first clue was, 
Maybe it was when you invited him round to dinner and he basically called you a hypocrite full of greed and wickedness in Luke chapter 11. Or maybe it was John chapter 8 when he essentially said that you were the very sons of Satan himself. I don't know. There's so many pleasant memories, it's hard to tell. But at the very least, it is clear that you guys are not the best of friends. Oh, oh, but then he really went and did it. Okay, Mark chapter 11. This guy, he waltzes into the temple during a sacred festival and just throws his weight around like he owns the place. He sends all the money lenders out, he overturns tables, and he stops all business from being done that day. <laughs> He's basically pronouncing a curse on this temple and on the whole temple system. How dare he? How dare he? The temple is the center of Jewish life. This is the place where atonement is made for sin. This is the house of God. God himself set up the temple. Only God has the right to pronounce a curse on the temple. So who does this guy think he is? Oh, oh and, and if that's not bad enough, as Pharisees, you are the extension of the temple into everyday life. You're the authority of God on earth, right? So this is a direct attack on you. He is undermining your authority. Well, something has to be done about this guy. And you know what? You are the ones to do it. And so immediately, you go and confront him. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Clever, is he? Hmm. Bringing up John, now that's tricky. You see, you hadn't really bought into John's philosophies. You didn't really think he was a prophet. But the people did. And I know, as easily misled and as uneducated as the masses are, they have power in numbers. You can't publicly deny John or you'll lose the authority of the people and your, and your respect is gone. But you can't publicly proclaim John either or Jesus is going to pin you down. So you've got to evade and you can't get Jesus, at least not this time. So you go in for round two and you team up with the guys called Herodians. Now, not your usual allies here, but you guys have got a common enemy and you've got the perfect trap for him. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. 
You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now you've got them good. You see, if he says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, you can have the Romans arrest him. I'm not going to stand for that kind of insurrection. But if he says, yes, you should pay the tax, then he'll lose respect from the people. You see, the Jews hate paying this tax. It's not a money issue. It's the fact that the coin you have to use to pay it has an inscription of Caesar on it, and it proclaims him as the Son of God. That's pretty blasphemous stuff. So either way that Jesus answers, boom, you've got him. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscriptions? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Man, this guy is smart. No doubt. I mean, he's got some intelligence. That was a good answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I mean, the coin has the image of Caesar on it, right? So you give it back to Caesar. But we as humans, we have the image of God on us. So we give that to God. So they go to him with this fantastic story about seven brothers and the poor woman who has to marry the lot of them. And I'll let you get into the story in your own time. But basically, Jesus mocks their intelligence. He says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures and the power of God? Ouch! You do not know the scriptures? These are the Sadducees. Man, the scriptures are all i got, <laughs> you know. They, they live for this stuff. They study it all day. And they've studied it way more than any carpenter from Nazareth ever could have. So who does this guy think he is? And then you see someone else enter the mix. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now this seems like a very happy little back and forth between Jesus and this teacher of the law, who by the way is kind of like a professor of theology. But you know better. You see, everything is going swimmingly in this conversation until Jesus has the audacity to say something like, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far. 
Not far. Do you walk up to a professor of theology and say, you're close, you're really close. And who is this guy think he is determining who's in and who's not in the kingdom of God? Well, even you Pharisees can't do that. Only God has the choice of who's in and who's out. Does this guy think he's God? And then it's like the gloves come off. Jesus is teaching in the crowds and he directs a question right at you and your colleagues. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Now this puts you in a bit of a tricky situation. Okay, so here's the great King David, the pinnacle of Jewish history, saying by the Holy Spirit, so we know it's true, he calls the Messiah or Christ Lord, okay? But the Messiah is supposed to be a descendant or son of David. Here's the problem. Dads don't call their sons Lord unless the son outranks the father, right? But who could outrank the great King David, anointed by God to lead all of the people. There's only one who could outrank David, and that's God. So Jesus is either saying that the Messiah is not the son of David, or that the Messiah is God. While well, you are a student of the Scriptures, you know that the Messiah is going to be the son of David. There's no getting around that. And that only leaves one option. But that's impossible. I mean, if, if, if the Messiah is God, and this guy claims to be the Messiah, he's done some pretty cool miracles to back that up. And that means that this guy standing in front of you is God. And he's opposing you. Well, I mean, that can't be. I mean, you can't be that wrong about things, right? I mean, you guys are the experts in the scripture. You are the authority of God on earth. Yeah, and you know what? You are not going to submit to some carpenter from a little podunk town of Nazareth. No, no. There's only one thing that you as a Pharisee can do in this situation. When someone is trying to undermine you and take your authority away. This guy's got to die. Let's bring it back into the present time. I think Mark's trying to tell us a couple of different things here by putting these stories these interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees together. Firstly, he's showing us that Jesus has taken the authority from the temple, he has taken the authority from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he's put it on himself. By pronouncing that curse on the temple, by putting these guys in their place, he has asserted his dominance over both of them. They are no longer the authority of God on earth. Jesus is. This is important, and I want to make sure we understand this. We are no longer under the authority of those teachers or the Old Testament system. We no longer have to fulfill a certain list of purity laws and cleansing laws in order to guarantee eternal righteousness and eternal acceptance from God. 
That system was impossible anyway. Jesus has asserted his dominance over that, and he's re- he has lived it, he has fulfilled it, and he has replaced it with a system of grace. And in that system, we are already guaranteed eternal acceptance with God, regardless of how well we do with the purity laws. That is the system that has authority over us. And if you want to hear more about that, that amazing story, check out the Hebrew series we went through last year for, for a description of how Jesus took that system and replaced it with something that was infinitely better. But Mark is trying to tell us something else here too. He's trying to show us what happens when Jesus tries to take authority away from those who think they should still have it. Now the Pharisees were religious men, no doubt. They were experts on the scriptures, but they had let that authority get to their heads, which is why Jesus had so many problems with them. And they were not willing to give that authority up just yet. In fact, in a move of tragic irony, they were willing to kill the Son of God in order to keep their authority. Contrast that attitude with the attitude of John the Baptist. Here's another guy who had ample authority over the people. But listen to what he says when Jesus starts to gain some popularity. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. See, John was willing to give up his authority and submit to the one that he knew deserved it. Now that confronts us with a really difficult decision. We are faced with the same Jesus who requires nothing less than complete authority over our lives. And that gives us a choice of two reactions. We can either follow the the road of John the Baptist, submit to him, make our claim less so his claim is more. Or we can follow the road of the Pharisees and try to do away with Jesus in order to retain our own autonomy. Let me tell you, that's not an easy choice. I mean, it sounds like for the Christian, yeah, that's a no-brainer. But do not underestimate how difficult it is to say in your heart and in your mind that your desires, your wants, your will is less important than God's. And to say that every day. (laughs) That's hard. Let me tell you, I find that extremely difficult. Think about this. Why do you think so many Christians struggle with slipping back into a mentality of works-based religion? It's like we've taken this this gift of salvation that that Jesus has given us, this freedom that he has allowed us to not have to fulfill those lists of laws and regulations. And we've just set it aside to go back to this old mentality. 
To be a good Christian, you have to do this, this, and this. You have to spend this much time in prayer. You have to read your Bible this much. You have to tithe that much. You have to spend a certain amount of time invested in the church. It's like we've gone back to the Old Testament system. And you want to know why? Because it's easier. You know, either, either consciously or subconsciously, we know that it's just easier to go to a list of do's and don'ts than to submit to the living God. Because if we go to that list, even if we fail miserably, and we do, we are doing it. And we know exactly what we need to do to get back into God's good graces. We are doing it. We are still in charge. Our own actions, we keep our own authority. But we can't have it both ways. We either go back to that Old Testament way and, and try and forge ahead under our own strength to get to the perfection that God has set, or we submit completely to the authority of Christ in our lives. Let me tell you, one of those ways works, and one of them doesn't. And I'll let you figure out which one is which. He said, what it really boils down to is this. The authority that we have in our lives is not a list of rules and regulations but a person. Let me say that again. What controls us, the authority in our lives, the paradigm by which we make all of our decisions is not a list of rules, of do's and don'ts. It's a person, the person of God. God did not give us His Holy Spirit as some kind of supernatural police officer to pull us over every time we do something wrong. He gave us the Holy Spirit as part of His personhood to reside in us so we can get to know Him, so He can lead us, so He can guide us and help us. God is the authority, not the law. And that's where this crosses over into our everyday life. We go to God for guidance, for our, our actions, our words, Everything that we do, we go to the person of God. And that can only happen when we seek out that relationship to, with Him, to get to know Him. So yeah, we read our Bibles. Yeah, we do want to spend a good amount of time in prayer. And yes, we do want to commit to the community of believers that is the local church. But we don't do those things to be a good Christian. And we don't do those things in order to, because that's what we should do. We do those things because we want to get to know the God that went to the cross to die for us. We do those things because we want to know this God who takes up residence inside of us. We do those things because we want to know this God who requires and deserves my complete and utter allegiance and obedience. That's why we do it. And then we begin to understand and discern His voice in our lives. We start to hear His voice, and I don't necessarily mean an audible voice, but we hear it in the pages of Scripture. We hear it in our quiet times of prayer. We hear it <laughs> in the sermon on Sunday morning. And then we begin to understand what God really wants in our lives, where He wants us to go, what decisions He wants us to make, what attitudes He wants us to take with us on our everyday walk. And then we can submit to His authority 
and obey him. Jesus is standing there asking, no, no, requiring complete authority over your life. The question is, will you give it to him? Will you, will you say every day, will you, you seek him out, discern his voice, and then let him be the boss? Will you be a John the Baptist? Or will you be a Pharisee? You see, we see in the Gospels that Jesus does not take second best. So really, I ask you, if Jesus is not Lord of our lives, what is he? What is he? 